I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe. And Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Policy Forum Pod comes to you from policyforum.net at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school based close to the heart of the Australian politics and policy in Canberra and on campus uh, in a beautiful place at ANU, I add. If you've listened to the uh, two weeks episodes, you already know this, but um, if you've just joined us now, you might have noticed that I'm not Martin Pierce. Uh, my voice is different. Um, my name's Denise Ferris, and I'm the head of the ANU School of Art and Design. And along with Kim Cunio, who's the head of the School of Music, I've just sort of stolen the show, temporarily taken over from Martin, who is at the back making sure that everything goes fine and taking a break from being at the front this week. Here I'm supposed to introduce a few of my accomplishments and I'll just say that uh, the other hat that I'm wearing today is as uh, Chair of the Australian Council of Universities of Art and Design Schools, ACUADS, which is a uh, very long-standing organisation, a national organisation with some international uh, connections. But you'll hear more about that later when we enter into discussion. So for the final instalment of this very friendly takeover of the podcast, I'm joined by Associate Professor Kim Cunio, head of the uh, ANU School of uh, Music, where you might have guessed when he's not making music, he's interested in um, social justice and interdisciplinary endeavours. And in fact, Kim and I just wrote a, a little article for Nitro, which uh, is the DDCA, who our other guest also represents. It's their publication online. You might want to check that out. So welcome, Kim. Thanks, Denise. Great to be with you. So this week, we're going to be looking at the future of the arts and the academic arts, the cultural sector in a COVID time. And we have invited our, our very dear colleague and our special guest, Professor Clive Barstow, who's the Executive Dean of Arts and Humanities at Edith Cowan University. Clive is also Chair of the Directors and Deans of the Creative Arts, um, as well as a practising artist of significant 
are standing. So we welcome you very early from Perth this morning, Clive. Hi, Denise. Hi, everybody. I'm going to push off with a discussion between the three of us about what things are like in the arts cultural sector and the academic arts cultural sector as a result of COVID-19. I will very much talk from a tertiary education perspective of ACUADS and also as head of school. I have uh, witnessed so that certainly since March when we left campus and we, unlike Perth, are, are still in remote teaching mode. But we have noticed that limitations to studio access, you know, do remain an incredible challenge for teaching and learning for students and practitioners. Access to the necessary technologies, you know, where students had to share computers at home and share spaces, perhaps poor bandwidth, really also highlighted social inequities. And that was a significant issue. And while life was never a level playing field for our students in tertiary education, being back on only your own resources was quite actually a bitter, bitter pill for some. So apart from what my colleagues will add, I would suggest that, you know, what I've obviously seen is a lack of public interface for visual artists and designers, which has had an impact. However, I I would also like to put some positive, I wouldn't say spin on it, but note some positive attributes, and that's that through technologies, remote connections were made possible with significant international artists, uh, practitioners in their studios that we would normally not be able to gain access to, and designers. Amazing number of networks really lit up during COVID. And also I have to add that I noticed that critically access for some was dramatically enhanced. People with disabilities, amazing. Students living remotely, um, people, I'm, I'm two hours from a city here, for example, people like uh, myself could plug into all kinds of things from anywhere on your phone. And really amazing live content, not just remote picking up stuff on the internet, but amazing interactive live content. That was uh, particularly positive, I think. So, of course, resilience was the major thing that everyone's built, but many did adapt and found new channels also not just for disseminating their practice, their work online, uh, but also for new ways of doing and also new kinds of work. So that kind of belief in adaptation or, you know, the, um, the groovy term of the time, pivot. So I hand to my colleagues to make um, some comments about that issue. Look, I agree. There are some positives, obviously, that come out of uh, this situation. But I think the first thing to mention is how amazing academic staff have been during this time, just mm. to to get basically so studio practice is so important to everything that we do. And I think, I think we all realise that now more than ever. But to move from thousands of years of doing something in a particular way and believing in that, to an online delivery within, for some of us, days, literally days, we had to move our curriculum online. It's really testament to, you know, people's ingenuity and creativity. So that's that really amazed me, I think, more than anything, how we all managed to do our best and look after our students, you know, in the tertiary sector. Um, I think the big hit for me is really in uh, areas of performance, um, so it's kind of easier, I guess, for an artist to be in lockdown and paint or a writer to write. But if we start looking at areas like film and music and theatre, for instance, 
Um, not only are we facing the closure of theatres and uh, cinemas, it's actually impossible to work together. It's, it's impossible to make a film. And it could be like that for a while. So um, I think there's going to be a lag of uh, a kind of hole in our creativity that, that could could be more than a year, maybe even two years for some areas, where we're just not able to collaborate in the same way. Um, and I think for me, it's really brought to light how important physical collaboration is in the arts and uh, that we miss it dearly. And interestingly, here in Perth, because we've managed to escape you know, the worst of the lockdown, um, the theatres are full again and the cinemas are full again and uh, people are going to concerts again. <laughs> Uh, on mass, so you can see just within for Perth, it's been literally about six months, but people have really missed that interaction. Um, so I really feel, you know, sorry for the people over east and particularly in Victoria. But um, I think it's really shown for me how important and perhaps how much we take for granted that physical interaction with our public. You've both raised something significant, really, because things weren't that easy before COVID hit, and that's the point I'd like to make. If you're if you're an artist. It's not that good. And I also wanted to make the point, there's not that many of us. The last time the Australia Council did a check on how many artists there actually were, in terms of people who identified as their primary practice, and regardless of what money they made, but that was their, their life path, there was less than 40,000. The, the majority were musicians, 15,400, 15, and visual artists, 8,600. So it's our two areas that have a lot, and about 8,000 actors and directors. So... The life for artists has always been precarious in Australia. And uh, what came up, you know, in, in the last round of serious research, and I can't wait to see what happens as a result of COVID, is that on average in, you know, in this period, the average creative income for an artist in our disciplines, our combined disciplines, was 6000 bucks. Isn't that shocking? Mm-hmm. You know, and so... So before COVID hit, we really had something that was becoming a really big issue because the amount of artists that we would know who've had to become teachers to, to survive, and many have done it very well, but some of our best artists just don't have that skill set and they're, they're really left behind. And, you know, the average income is, is pretty small for artists as well. Rarely does an artist make more than 50 grand a year, you know, in terms of in this country. And so we would say that really we have a class of people who do so much for the world and we've really felt it in COVID time, but the, the majority are living in poverty and the few like us who've been able to combine our artistic practice and get a job in a place like a university, we, we suffer from a bit of survivor guilt because, you know, we're, we're the ones who are getting, you know, properly paid and we do get some modest time to do our art practice as part of our jobs you know we're we're the lucky ones so I wanted to say before I I say anything that my heart goes to all those artists who were doing it really tough you know who could barely get a mortgage or barely pay the rent anyway and now they're they're really dependent on social security of of some sort so I think it is is dire and yet such is the generosity of spirit of artists they're the ones who are working for free to keep us entertained. Kim I think it I think a lot of the things we talk about today might go to the point about the value of the arts and the value of artists. And um, I was talking to somebody today about an exhibition we had a few years ago in Cuba. And um, apparently in Cuba, artists are among the highest paid people in society. Uh, And it's because Cuba really value artists, Not, not just the arts, but individual artists. And that goes to the value question, really. 
And I think here in Australia, you know, we don't value artists. I think we take artists for granted. Um, I think the link to tourism is one that we don't often talk about. But, um, you know, the arts and culture are a real draw for people in terms of tourism to Australia. And um, I think generally they're incredibly undervalued. And what COVID brought out was, you know, the fact that artists didn't get JobKeeper in the first instance. Most of the artists that we're talking about are working in a, a gig economy, so they don't have regular work, uh, they have spasmodic work. And even higher education was left out of JobKeeper. So I think there's a general um, theme about value of the arts in Australia, which really worries me. I think that's a, a wonderful segue, Clive, into the topic about the actual state of the cultural sector in Australia. And let's just start right at the top. Australia has still, in 2020, no national cultural policy, hmm. which, as we all know, is absolutely critical to making highly public, highly visible, demonstrating the irrefutable value of, you know, art design, culture, socially to the nation, and I, I've got to say economically to the nation. We've all, we've all seen the research. So the social, the economic value of the arts, as you say, is still worryingly, I'd say, not appreciated by society at large. I mean, we all work in large institutions which are comprised of the rest of society, admittedly, a certain portion of it. But I also think that that therefore has represented this government is not really interested in, in replicating any value to be found in the cultural sector in policy. And it, it is actually a scandal for a country assumes it's as sophisticated and advanced as it is and as, and as wealthy in many respects as it is not to have established that, that policy. Look, I, I totally agree, and um, obviously we need a national arts policy, but, you know, the idea of having a, a chief scientist, if we suggest that we have a chief artist, it sounds such a crazy idea, <laughs> you know, a chief artist, but mm. why is it so crazy, you know? Mm. And the, one of the good things that, for me, is coming out of COVID is the fact that we're starting to listen to experts again, and politicians are standing on the podium next to an expert. And I realise that's mainly in the kind of health sciences. But it, I think that's an important move now. I think society understands that experts have a say. So when it comes to arts and cultural policy, why, why don't we have an artist or you know, somebody from the performance areas or, or somebody standing on the stage with a politician talking about the importance of the arts? And that, for me, is about value again. Um, the very idea of a chief artist does sound crazy to most people, but... Actually, it shouldn't be. If we have a chief scientist and we rely on what a chief scientist has to say, then why wouldn't we have a chief artist too? Clive, I want to jump in and reiterate what you're saying because we have poet laureates in many advanced economies and mm. that's been going on you know, for hundreds of years. So we're not saying that we're looking to do anything radical. We're just looking to actually say that artistic practice has broadened significantly in, in the last hundred years because... There is, there's so, such good stories about the role of arts in Australia because, you know, the arts are free. I mean, we, of course, there's the odd time where, you know, an artist might say something and they fall foul of, you know, some part of the press or some person in government. 
But at the same time, it's possible to say what you think as an artist in Australia. And it's just worth thinking about how many societies don't offer that luxury at any point. Mm. That I think of someone like Vaclav Havel or Charter 77, you know, that the artists were the people who really were at the forefront of human rights. And, mm. and, you know, and think of the role of artists in, you know, Lekwalinsa in Poland in the, you know, so we've seen artists, you know, hugely involved in the ANC. Artists have a significant role to play in societies that aren't working. But in a society that largely is wealthy and doing okay, we can so easily be relegated to being the entertainment. And I think that's one of the issues I wanted to bring up, that get back in your box. You can make us feel better. We are something that can make TV between 7.30 and 9pm, and we love you when you do that. But if you say the things that confront us about the things that aren't working in our society, you're a little bit of a pesky fly in the ointment. So that's one of the the issues I think that does happen in our culture in Australia, that we try and keep artists in their box. And when they get a little bit tishy by being the canaries in the coal mine, the people who have not only a vested interest in keeping the status quo, but the people who just want their artists to be quite compliant people just say, no, we don't like this. I think you're absolutely right, Kim. I think you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to art and entertainment. And I think in a wealthy society, a relatively wealthy society, the arts really are about entertainment. You know, we turn the TV on and we take for granted, we watch a film and we take for granted, um, we watch the narrative, but we don't really understand how many people it took to make that film, um, you know, the behind camera. And that's what we do in universities. We train people to create films and uh, make films. So I think in a wealthy society, the value of the arts is often taken for granted because we can we can buy it. It's a commodity. Um, it's not a kind of the centre of our thinking in a way that art can be. So, um, and even in the education sector in universities, some universities really struggle to keep the arts alive within the universities for the same reasons. I think um, it's it's a kind of an ill-fitting piece in in many universities, and particularly regional universities. Um, yeah. because it doesn't fit the kind of, you know, the science metrics model of measurement. It's, and so I think the problem is much deeper than just out there in the public. It's actually in education as well. And I, I know a lot of universities are struggling to keep the arts alive um, well, as we go through restructures because of the, you know, what's happening with COVID, that the arts are really struggling. And I think it's sad that the arts aren't up there with everybody else you know, on an equal level talking about its its uh, contribution to culture and contribution to society. Yeah, I, look, I, I agree about um, in our in our sector, uh, I think we can sometimes be the first people they'll come for. And I think that's that's because in leadership, it's, it's very rare to have people from our sector in leadership. Look, I will mention, I will not name the university, but there are universities in the country that have pro-vice-chancellors of cultural policy mm. who are artists. <laughs> who are originally artists, and um, those universities will continue to thrive, um, you know, in large cities, admittedly, uh, within cultural um, uh, situations, cultural um, precincts, but um, they will thrive because there's leadership. There's leadership at the appropriate level for the cultural sector. I, I think... Um, I have said publicly um, in terms of going back to the notion of entertainment and and, and uh, audiences in the public, you know, when the sport comes on after the news, and this is, you know, on the uh, public broadcasting channel, 
I'm always railing about the fact that there should be there should be we should be looking at exhibitions as well as the game. We should be looking at <laughs> you know performances as well as the game. I think also Denise, it's a, a young country syndrome. Um, yeah. And again, if you anybody that you know before COVID has been lucky enough to travel through Europe, for instance, that has a history of culture at the centre of, of of living in a way, then you can actually smell culture. It doesn't have to be in galleries. It's quite often not in galleries. It's on the street. Mm. And you can sense history and you can smell the culture. It's, a, it's kind of embedded part of life. And I don't think we've reached that here yet. Um, and yet we have 60,000 years of indigenous culture that we sometimes mm. deny. So it's an odd thing about Australia that we we have that young country syndrome and yet we have such a, an amazing history of visual culture with indigenous culture so I think that's something that we have to sort out in Australia and I think that and in a strange way I think art is the glue that might help bond that one because we we do share visual language and we share that across the world. So I wanted to throw to both of you because you're both chairs of organisations where we don't have a chief artist but but we do have accuates in the DDCA. So I wanted to ask a question to both of you. What do you think the role of, you know, these sort of peak bodies for our our sector can be right now at this difficult time? Our two organisations, which are very closely aligned, um, the DDCA was set up as a group that, as, as you've heard, includes performance arts. That is uh, not accuates uh, remit. But, yeah, and has the wonderful Nitro, which is a fantastic publication, uh, which I think has really given a voice uh, to a whole lot of um, issues that we'll, you know, move across and many more. So, yeah, so we advocate. We talk to each other. I think we we provide a forum uh, for our colleagues who work, um, certainly for ACUADS in higher education. Um, you know, we have an annual conference um, that it's, it's very active. We publish but this is this is a, a, a volunteer executive board. This is not a um, you know with about thirty institutional members, and and that that institutional membership will be certainly challenged by current uh, nipping and tucking and people checking their budgets. There's no doubt about that. I will say that I think um, Acuads has served you know visual art, crafts, and design very well for many many years. But I will also say that it is, um, go out in the limb and say there are too many peak bodies in our sector. I think we have um, diluted our impact. It's really hard. And uh, Clive knows and Kim knows that it, we would really like to possibly change that by moving towards creating something of heft, something, a large, powerful advocacy body with enough resources to sort of generate policy backed by evidence, which is really could be a novel idea, but policy backed by evidence, uh, which is not, not something policies that we're seeing currently being certainly the inquiries that we're submitting to by government. We don't always see the evidence backing those policies and those changes. Accuads has done a sterling job of the time, but I, I think the game has certainly, it, it's even, it's become even more serious and the way in which advocacy is enacted, it really, really does require huge pressure and huge impact now. And I think that's becoming much more challenging. I think what we used to do was enjoy having conferences and uh, 
discussing what we do almost internally. But the game's really changed in the last few years. And most of our time is writing submissions to government. Um, it's become a different kind of advocacy, really. But the one thing that we have in common, and, and ACUADs are easily one of the strongest peak bodies and most lasting peak bodies in Australia for the arts. The one thing that we all have in common is that we look after um, academics who are based in the practice-led research. So if we look at the humanities peak bodies, for instance, quite often they'll include the word arts, um, but it doesn't re- they don't really look after the practicing arts. It tends to be the more liberal arts, things like English, uh, writing, um, history, politics. So what the game we're in is actually the practicing arts, the practice-led research arts, where the very things that we do are based on lifelong practice. Um, and in academia, we call that practice-led research. And the research, uh, t- to gain ground in that space, ACUADS and DDCA and a few other uh, various peak bodies have worked really hard over the years to develop something within um, the ARC, within ERA, where practice-led research is understood and recognised. So that's been a win, but it's been a hard win. Um, and we have had some wins in recent years. I mean, ACUAS have done an amazing job um, getting um, practice-led research into HERD-C. So HERD-C now fund practice-led research. We're only talking about the last two years. Um, we've made changes to um, th- through the ANZSRC review to the categories within the fields of research within universities. So we've helped define that in a better way for artists. Um, so we, we have had some wins, but we've had to work really hard. But the wins are just getting on the same playing field as everybody else. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not ahead. We're just trying to get the same as everybody else and just to be recognised, really. And it takes a lot of work, and that's what the peak bodies do. Um, the difference between ACUAS and DDCA is that the DDCA looks after other forms of um, art, such as music and film. It's just a broader sense. But the one thing that we really all believe in is this notion that practice is what makes us uh, work, basically. We can't have great music unless you practice. And how that relates to academic research is really important in our universities, as much for recognition as anybody else. So again, it's about that value proposition that we mentioned earlier. Clive, that's a very inspiring way. I'm just going to be gatekeeper and say, I think we need to take a little ad break. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So during our brief break then, I was just talking to um, Kim and Clive and 
and just musing on the fact that as we're as we're sitting here speaking to all of you on the floor of the Senate, uh, the bill for the uh, higher education amendment is being debated, and uh, that's the uh, job ready graduates uh, supporting regional and remote students. And what that basically does um, for the layperson is change what the government is prepared to pay a university for a particular discipline cluster um, course and what they expect a student to contribute. Now, uh, as you would have read in the media, these have been radical changes have been proposed uh, to favour science and other disciplines in part, um, it, although that's very, very complex. I was also I was saying that, you know, actually the creative disciplines Actually, we, have, we are not going to be particularly harmed in these changes. For us, they're no big deal. But both Clive's organisation, DDCA, and ACUADS, um, my organisation, put in a submission. And the reason that we did that was that it, it, these changes will harm some of the humanities disciplines in very, very unfortunate ways. We all operate now in... Um, in an environment of interdisciplinarity, of flexibility, where students are crossing over as they should. So none of us are just necessarily um, teaching art design majors, uh, performance majors, but we're teaching students who want to also perhaps learn French or also, you know, engage with English studies, etc., or cultural studies. So it will very much harm some of that potential to ha- for having an, an informed, an informed uh, university program, one that, that really can be deep and rich. Yes, Denise, and I can't wait to see what Clive says because I, I did read a, a brief of what Clive had prepared for the DDCA last week and it was, I thought, so well argued. And also talking about evidence, not talking about some sort of vilification, the point I'd like to make is that all of us who are on the ground, we really don't... We're not out to sort of get anyone on this. We're just actually out, out to help the government because we're the people who know what's going on. So I just wanted to make that point. There's not a feeling that it's this is a partisan thing. Dantian, for example, has an MA. So, so we can say that we sort of get what you're trying to do, but there's a series of unexpected results that might not be what they want and what we want. And I did want to say that, you know, as Denise said, you know, we've done quite well in the performing arts. I think, you know, what... Students are interested in is how much they pay, which will be seven thousand seven hundred dollars if the if the bill goes through, and that's not that much more than it was. But as it's been reported on on the news very many times, if you if you're doing some of the humanities subjects, you're essentially going to pay double for a degree, and the government is going to stump up a lot worse. So we have we now have things that the government will only pay the provider through a thing called the CGS fund for law accounting. Economics, commerce, communication, society and culture, the government's only going to pay $1,100 if this bill goes. And the student will pay fourteen and a half grand. And I think that is quite a big thing for, for us to just think about that some things that are really important to the structure of our society, the government doesn't feel that they're worth money to spend in, in an ongoing sense. And society and culture play such a role you know, in keeping the mental health of this society going right now. So I, I would say that often we make small savings and then we pay for them later in the health system, and that's one of the fears that I have. And certainly for myself, 
you know, at the ANU, we have a very, you know, it's an impressive, flexible double degree system. So, you know, we have in our music school, we have 40% of our students doing these flexible double degrees. So we have people who are actually doing a degree in all of these other things. But they, they say to me time and time again, I'm doing this music degree because this is how I'll stay sane. And this is what I think I'm born to do in this life. And I might have to do another job for part of my time. I get that. It's okay. But I, I feel that I have an important role to play in our society by being an artist. And I think that's what universities do offer, is that sense of critical thought and interdisciplinarity, which we'll get to later. So that's my little take. And I'm very interested to see what you say, Clive, because you wrote such a great submission last week. Oh, look, if you give me two hours, I can uh, go through everything. But um, look, I think the legislation for me is just fundamentally unfair. I, I don't think I can't find anything in it that says how fair it is to advantage one group of students by disadvantaging another financially. And however you look at it, the reasons behind it, it really doesn't stack up. It's not being based on good research. Um, if we're talking about future employment, there are as many jobs going to be available to humanities students and art students that are to STEM. It's just not, doesn't stand up. So... Look, if the gloves are off, if we're really talking about what I think this is about, I think it's about social engineering and um, and using COVID recovery as a kind of reason to get this through. But if this does go through, this is going to affect education for a long time. This isn't just about COVID recovery. This polarizes the arts and sciences. And that's one of the downsides of a legislation like this, is that the arts and sciences will separate even more than they are now, because students... You know, don't go to university to do music thinking that they might want to do an engineering unit because it's cheaper. They simply don't do it, and they won't be doing it either. Um, so I don't think the finances will drive habits in terms of curriculum. It's just going to basically disadvantage certain students in areas like communications um, from studying what what they want to study. Uh, and I think it's you know basically unfair. So... And what's interesting in all of this, when I, the reason I brought up this idea about polarising the arts and sciences, that it, in, a, in a COVID recovery, all the research tells us and the science tells us that the arts and sciences need to come together. They need to work together and collaborate to bring us out of this, this awful time. So it's not a time to be polarising anything. And um, what's interesting in the UK is that the UK have gone the other way. They've actually created a, a thing called SHAPE, and it stands for Science, Humanities, Arts for the People in the Economy. And it's really linking the arts and sciences and directing the impact for people and the economy. Um, and I think that's a sensible way to go, and it's the only way to go, actually. Um, and it, that shows, for me, a kind of maturity in thinking at a time when uh, we need to be thinking about how we can work together, not how we can separate study and separate people and separate thinking. So um, I think we should be looking at something similar, but this legislation is really going in the opposite direction for me. So, And that's why I had to kind of write a quite a lengthy proposition to the government because you know, I just find it's just going in the wrong direction and, and fundamentally unfair for students. I actually want to move the conversation on because we could just spend the rest of the podcast on this. And I think that would be a pretty amazing podcast, actually. But uh, we did touch on this thing called ERA before. And so I just wanted to ask both you, Clive and Denise, you know, what's there was this review about ERA that you mentioned that the, you know, both our organizations have, you know, made a response to. But what's ERA really like for the arts and arts practitioners? 
you know, the, the sort of artists who work in universities, because I think a lot of people don't realise that we get all these people who have to do this other thing very quickly when they take on this job. I think the main thing is the way the ERA is still set up. It does rely on resources and heavily resourcing an ERA submission actually can make it a better submission in my view. And I think that that is difficult. That is really difficult to get your head round because it, it, it means, you know, perhaps all the smaller scale institutions without the A team who are really taking this on are left wilting. Uh, yeah. Or if, if institutions don't have the A team and don't resource having the Uber ERA 24 7 knock it out of the park team, um, that, yeah, individual disciplines will suffer, schools will suffer, and codes will suffer at different institutions because we all wear those numbers, one to five, for many years, unlike the UK system. But I won't go into that now, but it is something that was not looked at when we put it into the inquiry. The UK system is much more nuanced in its feedback to institutions. Denise, I think you're right. And I think, again, it goes back to the um, idea that you know, the young country idea that we're not really sophisticated yet, but we are slowly getting there. And um, one of the jobs of the peak bodies is to chip away at this and just try to, mm. to do catch up. And, um, and I think what's happening in universities at the moment is that there's a certain amount of era fatigue in the creative arts because um, every time we enter era, there are, the rules have changed slightly and the requirements have increased. So um, I think that is going to happen. And particularly with the period of you know COVID, the restrictions that we've had on performances, because the way that arts are measured in the era is on uh, exhibitions and performances. It's not the activity of making arts that's actually being measured. It's the performance of that or it's the exhibition of that. And that is there's going to be a massive hole, you know, one or two year hole in that due to COVID because of the closure of galleries that may, may never open again, uh, closure of theatres and, and so on. Um, but I think what it does point to for me is that we're still in, a, in an equivalence model. So in trying to chip away and to correct codes and try to refine this, we still are comparing creative outputs to, say, um, uh, STEM outputs and citation-based measurement, uh, metrics-based measurement. And, and we keep comparing it. I've seen this in promotion exercises in universities where the panel – if the you know mainly uh, not from humanities or not from the peer review uh, kind of spec end of the spectrum, they're really making these equivalence, uh, having dis- equivalence discussions all the time. About, oh, that that's equal to this, or an exhibition is equal to a book, or is it equal to a, a finding in research? And I think that for me shows that we're still quite naive in the way that we approach this in trying to measure something in the arts that's probably immeasurable, actually, but we have to do our best. So I think peer reviewing um, is the best we have. Um, It can be improved. I'd like to see more practising artists on the panels um, so that they understand what goes behind an exhibition or a performance. Because a performance and an exhibition is something that you pop along to for a few hours, but there could be years and years of work behind that. And I think... We're not really seeing that in in era. We're not seeing it in promotion exercises in universities either. So I, I still think it shows where we are in the whole kind of scheme of equivalence models. Um, 
So I think it's improving. Uh, I think it's getting better. I do, and I, I agree with your point about it could well be that some areas now don't make threshold because we've actually, on one hand, sorted out the categories, which is good, but um, it's uh, it could have a negative effect on some of the smaller universities, particularly where we have all these disciplines, but we just can't make threshold. Clive, Denise, incredible answers, I think. I'm just looking at the time. We don't have a, a lot left, so I'm going to cut to our, our last question, and I hope that the three of us can just discuss this as people who just, you know, we get to sort of see what goes on and also be in the coalface. Uh, if we could make rules and package for our sector, you know, what would we do? And if there's someone from the government or a senior, you know, public servant listening to this, what is it that we would like them to take away from this or just to say, you know what, I'd like to do this tomorrow? So I would say that research, research and understanding demonstrates and offers so much better information that seems to be at hand or that we don't want to make this ideological and it's very hard not to see things as ideological. Um, we really truly want to bring this back to social justice, as Clive said, fairness, equity, and also, um, as research says, you know, it's no more likely that um, STEM graduates will, make, will have jobs more readily than their, than their peer graduates in arts and humanities. I mean, fact, that is a fact. So I think we recognise the flexible, wonderful, rich system that we've all worked so hard to develop in tertiary education, and, and I think it's working very well, and I would welcome the chance to just explain to my colleagues in government how well it is working. I agree. And, and uh, look, I think just generally... If we just pull back and look at this thing from afar, um, if we're talking about a sophisticated society, I think sometimes when we say that, we are talking about a wealthy society. But a sophisticated society has a sophisticated culture. And if you look at sophisticated societies through history, culture's really being at, at the centre of that. And it's not um, separating the arts from the sciences. It, that kind of sophistication is when all those things work together. So I think, you know, if we could manage anything, it would be to be taken seriously, as seriously as any other expert in the field, and that universities play their role in advocating for education across the board, and not just in times of COVID, where obviously the focus is on health, and, and so it should be. We, you know, we need to recover from this. But what happens when we have recovered? What does it mean to be human? Um, and I think people are changing their opinions about that during COVID because of lockdown and um, you know various death and things that are happening in families are just terrible. And people are questioning now life. You know what what is life and what are we fighting for and what should life be like? And I think we do have a moment now where we can say, well, actually, life is more than just about working. It's actually about living. And this is what the arts can do to life. It brings great um, breadth to life. It brings great quality. It brings critique. Um, and I think if, if there's ever a time that we can talk about that, about that contribution of the arts and humanities to society, then in a post-COVID world, um, and in a world where work is going to change radically, it's going to be you know, me obviously mechanised. So um, the human spirit and, and human skills in areas like empathy, creativity, 
are really what the arts teach in universities. And so graduates from arts courses and universities are going to go out there with the skills that are going to be so important in the future. And yet we're only talking about COVID recovery as a one or two year idea. But actually, it's things have changed. Things will change forever now. And we need to look at the positives of those changes, not just the negatives. So for me, it's actually advocating for a future that will be a different future after COVID and a future where I think the art should play a really, really central and important role. When you were speaking, Clive, I was thinking back, you know, some years ago and when Keating really championed the work of Geoffrey Tozer as a pianist and said, actually, for myself as a PM, I'm going to believe in an artist and promote that artist. Mm. And I thought, you know, I would say that any senior government figure, if they could engage with one discipline or one part of the arts and just say, I'll, I'll have a day-to-day lived experience of that art form and champion it, wouldn't that be an incredible thing? Just, just to say, engage with us. You know, as we started this podcast, think about what an arts policy is. Think about what a music policy is, a visual arts policy. Think about if we were to have a national representative of the arts in Australia, what would that person look like? And think for me, the final thought is, let's think about the fact that our First Nations people are so often artists. You know, even the ones who are so-called working in policy or law or doing that really hard on the groundwork, which is so needed for our society, that they are always seeing themselves as artists as well. So the, the concept of otherness that we've covered in this podcast so much doesn't really exist for many First Nations, you know, practitioners. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, um, Kim. And, and thanks, Clive. How wonderful and so enjoyable to talk about this with both of you. And, yep, we could go on for hours, but it's okay, Martin, we're not going to. I now say, listeners, before we let you go, just a reminder for you to join our pod squad. We're on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod, and your membership comes with a few perks. Not only can you get in touch with our presenters, and please do, some of our panellists and other engaged listeners, but you will also get access, early access to Ask Policy Forum series. The podcast will actually you, the listeners, get to ask the questions from the serious to the seriously silly. But you can also reach us through Twitter at a-p-p-s-policyforum. <laughs> or send, I'm, 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 I really would have mushed that up. If you got that, you're a genius. Um, or send us an email on podcast at policyforumoneword.net. So if you don't want to miss out on any future episodes of Policy Forum Pod, we really recommend that you subscribe. Subscribe to us and you can find us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favourite podcasts. But before then, we've got another edition of our special Making the Invisible Visible a mini-series coming your way. For those of you who've checked out the first two episodes, you'll know that throughout this six-part bonus series, we're shining a light on poverty with researchers from Crawford School's Individual Measure of Multidimensional Deprivation Project. If you're keen to listen in, our new episodes will be released every Tuesday through the Policy Forum pod feed. So hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss out. Thanks for joining, Kim, and I uh, for the last three weeks of exploring decolonisation, transdisciplinarity, activism and social justice, and the future of the arts and our cultural sector. 
I just want to thank you, Denise, and, and you, Clive, for all of that. A big shout-out to all the team at Crawford, particularly Martin, who is an absolute stalwart in getting people to have their say and in finding ways to structure the conversation so it's really for the public good. So a big shout-out to all our colleagues at the Crawford School who do such an incredible amount for our country and its society. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.